we have a house church model, and we regularly gather all of our house churches to worship together, and we do that at least once a month on the first, typically the first Sunday of the month. That was this past Sunday, and I, I preached, and that was recorded. And so typically, in our uh, when we meet as house churches, we will always have, the parish leaders always have notes from me, and we open the scriptures, and we facilitate a study and a discussion, and it's wonderful. Uh, as in an ad- as an addition to that, I always um, I want to say typically just to be safe, but I I try to always the next day or so give a thirty minute message uh, that's sort of a sermon, but just recorded like this, so it's not quite sermonic, but on the text just as a supplement in case people it's for me as much as as for the sheet, but. Um, the point is, I do that Mondays, uh, the day after we meet as a house church, since I don't get to preach, and just as a supplement um, to the word that was opened up and discussed in the house church, I, once a month when we all gather and I get to preach, or someone preaches, that message is recorded, and so I typically don't record another message. Um, but I am, I am today, because I preached to uh, our elder candidates from Acts 20, which we'll get into in a second. And I really, I had notes on essentially every line of that text, really key stuff focused on the call of the elder, the work of the elder, um, given by Paul to the Ephesian elders, and really got to preach that to our two elder candidates. But I really felt led by the Holy Spirit to, as I prayed, to not really preach an exhaustive sermon um, as much as just a, four, a shorter four-point. So I did that, and I think the Lord was in it. I know He was, because His Word never returns void, and His Spirit was, was there. Um, but I just wanted to take the time to sort of come in a couple days later and give a little bit of a fuller um, message that unpacks a little bit more of the text here in Acts 20, as Paul is saying his last words to these Ephesian elders and leaving them with these charge, these, these charges to shepherd God's church as he, as he goes and to serve Christ in so doing. And so, I, if anything, I just wanted to uh, kind of fill in what I said on Sunday. And I'll say some of the things over again, but I'll skip over some of the stuff I said. And really just to have this, um, in the, at the very least, as something that we can return to, that our elders or aspiring elders can return to, that our people can return to, as they think about the call of the elder, the work of the elder, which is a pastor. And so the context, again, is... So if you want to listen to the sermon, do that. It's recorded. But if um, let me just repeat a bit of what I said a couple of days ago on Sunday, and that is that the context here is that as we march through the book of Acts... We have been here for a year plus, and we're in chapter 20 now, and there are 28 chapters, so we're nearing the end. And really, from this point forward, the rest of the book of Acts, I mean, this is simplistic, but uh, the rest of the book of Acts is Paul heading toward being arrested in Jerusalem, being arrested in Jerusalem, giving speeches with, with uh, handcuffs on about his journey, about his coming to faith, about Christ and the gospel, the good news of the gospel to various people that are putting him on trial and keeping him under house arrest or in prison and being shuffled from one place to the next under arrest all the way to Rome. That's essentially the rest of the book of Acts. And so what we have here 
is Paul, he's heading, he's on the tail end of his third missionary journey, which has taken years. He's essentially gone back in this journey to churches that he's planted and encouraged them and taught and bolstered them. And here he's heading back to Jerusalem at a fast clip. He really wants to get back. The text tells us, Luke tells us, the author, who tra- who was his traveling companion uh, for a large part of his, of his journeys, um, and certainly here. So he really wants to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. And so he's kind of hurrying back, and he's spent over two years in Ephesus teaching and planting churches, raising up disciples, and all of Asia, we're told, here's the gospel. It spreads out through Paul's ministry there, and miracles are being done. And it's just a rich time, and he loves these people, as we can see at the end of this text, at the very last verse, few verses in Acts 20, where we are, are just a scene of him being on the shore as he's about to step onto this boat and head back to Jerusalem with these Ephesian elders who have journeyed a day and a half to get to him, to kind of hear his parting words. Uh, and, and among them being, I'll never see you again. This, this side of the new creation, that is, um, when we're together with the risen Christ. But uh, they're on the beach together, sort of on their knees, crying and hugging each other and praying and giving each other to the Lord before Paul steps back on the boat. So he loves these people. It's the reason he doesn't, he's on, in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to go back into, the, into Ephesus. He'll get sucked back in. He knows it. So he calls them. He's in a place called Miletus, which is close, about a day and a half journey. And he, he's on the boat and he calls the Ephesian elders, all the elders in the churches, the house churches in Ephesus to come and notice it's called the church in Ephesus. So it's, it's again, thought of rightly as one body. And we would do well to think of the church more in that way. Um, one body of Christ under his headship, unified, loving each other, but ministering in various parts of the city. Enough of this turf war stuff. It's time for, it's time for, um, for us to press forward into better, better territory as a church. And I can see that happening in Houston, but God be praised. Um, through organizations like the Houston Church Plenty Network and others. But so, so they come out to him, and here he is, and this is the last thing that he says to them. And, it, and he, he is speaking to the elders, which are pastors, which I'll touch on in a bit. Uh, the same word for elder or, pre, or presbyter, presbyteros in the Greek, is also, it's, it's used interchangeably here in this text with, with shepherd, uh, which pastor, um, and so uh, an elder is, is a pastor, and he really presses into that point and opens it up some here to, the, to these men. But um, he's, he's telling them about their work and how important it is and what it needs to look like and how they need to serve and who they're serving. And it was just special, and I said this in the sermon a few days ago, but it was a special Sunday not only because we were bringing these two men, Justin and Nathaniel, before us, uh, they've been training for a year and a half plus in their candidacy, and they've, been, they've passed oral exams, they've, they've been with me for a long time, walking with me, ministering, um, uh, facilitating and hosting house churches and, and, and pastoring, uh, although not officially, um, unofficially, in so many ways, pouring their lives out. And now they're about to be officially ordained. And so we brought them before the congregation and uh, are giving the congregation 30 days to bring, to consider them as, as soon-to-be elders and to bring any charges against them that were in ways that they might not line up with 
the elder uh, qualifications that Paul gives elsewhere in his letters in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. So uh, we look forward to ordaining them, God willing, next, next month in June, early June, first Sunday, June 6th, I believe it is. But uh, brought these men up, and the point I'm trying to make is this. Think about this with me for a second, if you will. The nexus point, the convergence of, you know, this has been an 18-month plus long process pushed way back by COVID um, and other things where we've been readying these men for ordination. And we're also on a separate track preaching through the book of Acts. It's been over a year, I think. We're in chapter 20 now. We did not plan this convergence, but in God's providence, on the very Sunday that we happened to bring these men up to put them in front of the congregation to be ordained the next month, on that very Sunday, um, a year and a half into this process, uh, and a year into the process of preaching the book of Acts, we happened to be in the only passage where Paul uh, is addressing elders in the church and telling them, here's your work. And it's just, a, it's just, a, a, it's just not a rubber stamp. It's just a stamp on a verification of the fact that what we are doing is not our idea. Elders are God's idea for the health of his church. And the fact that he's with us. We know this cognitively. He tells us at the end of Matthew and elsewhere, Behold, I, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We know that he's with us by his spirit as he bodily reigns from heaven at the right hand of power, at the right hand of his father. We know this, but sometimes it's nice to be reminded. And in this way, he was just encouraging me and through me, the, the congregation, that he's in control of every step we take. And he is pleased with this because it's his idea. It's in his word to have elders in the church, not just to have one pastor, but to have a plurality of pastors and headship and leadership to, to serve the church, to love the church, to wash the church with the water of the word of God, um, to pour their lives out for, for the flock, to shepherd the flock, to guard from wolves that will, as Paul says here, certainly come in and ravage um, and, and sow lies, and sow, sow tares into the wheat. And, um, and so it's his idea. And also he, he's with us even in, this, even in the timing that we didn't plan out, but, but he did. It's the right time. So I'm really thankful for that and just wanted to point that out again. Um, let's get into the text and just look at a few things. It's a four-point sermon, but this will just be sort of walking through the text, and I'll skip over some things that I've already said. But just one thing that was mentioned is that Paul, he says to the elders, they come to him from Ephesus, and he's in Miletus, and he says, you yourselves know, he starts out his speech, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So notice that he didn't say how I lived elsewhere and then I came, I dropped in every now and again and checked it. No, I lived among you. Very incarnational, like his master, like Jesus, who came to live among us, with us, um, didn't think himself uh, above going to the lowest place, ministering to the lowest person. In fact, he loved doing it. He's a humble God. Paul, with Christ in him and permeating his being, um, is doing the same thing. Every good pastor is among his people, with his people. Think of Henry V in the, as he's about to give his St. Crispin's Day speech on the eve of, of battle and the night before he, he's among his troops. 
um, listening to them, talking to them, cloaked so that they don't under, they don't know that it's it's the king. So, and the elder is certainly no king, although he governs um, in the name of Christ and he shepherds, but he's among his sheep. He knows his sheep. He's with his sheep. So he says, you know how I was among you from the first day until now, he says, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. In other words, he doesn't, it's kind of astonishing. It's surprising. He doesn't say serving, you expect him to say serving you or serving the church. No, he doesn't say that. He says serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. He understands what elders need to because for so many reasons, but when they serve God's people, they're serving God first and foremost. You know, it's sort of the flip of what David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. And you kind of, it, it, when you read that, especially for the first time, but even for the thousandth, it ought to jar you. It's like, well, hey, hang on, God. Hang on, David. You, you just stole a man's beautiful wife, slept with her, got her pregnant, and then tried to, and then had this man killed to cover up your sin. He was a friend of yours and one of your bodyguards and one of your most faithful servants. Um, he had this one wife, you had, you had many wives. Uh, what an egregious sin. And yet this very sin is the one you're speaking about. And you're saying against you only have I sinned. Well, our sins are first and foremost against God, which is why he can forgive us. One of the many reasons that, that he can forgive us because they, they are against him primarily first and foremost before they're against anyone else. Uh, and the flip, the flip is true here that we, we are serving the church. We are serving people, but really first and foremost, we're in serving God's people. We're serving God. I mean, what does Paul say elsewhere? Like in first Corinthians, he says that the church is the body of Christ. The church is being prepared to be the bride of Christ. And a bride is one flesh with her husband. And so, and, and this, this is very autobiographical for Paul on the road to Damascus Jesus came to him and he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? And his name was Saul and Christ changed it to Paul. But Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? He didn't say my church. Paul was persecuting the church. He said, why do you persecute me? When we touch the church, we touch God himself. He has wed us to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ given for us and shed for us. And so... um, this is what Paul says, and I think what is at the foundation of the service of the shepherd um, to the flock is that when we, when we love the flock, we're loving the Lord. When we serve the flock, we're serving the Lord. And that can help a lot um, because sometimes it can be so frustrating and so hard and so thankless. But what we're doing, we're doing for, we're doing for Jesus. Just like he said, uh, when, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. When you give a cup of cold water, you're giving it to me. Wonderful. And, you know, again, in verse 19, like I just read, he says, I, what I did, I did with all in this service as I served the Lord. I did it with all humility, tears, and trials. And, he, and this, is, this litters the passage. Um, and and it's sort of, it's the beginning and the end. There, there are tears at the end of the passage where we find Paul crying again, but this time his tears are tears of tenderness and compassion and joy because he loves these people. He's poured his life out for these people and he's leaving. And so there are tears of joy and there are tears of sadness in the life of a pastor. And that that really is a huge part of our work uh, and it characterizes it. Um, 
There are wonderful joys, but there are a lot of tears and trials. It's humbling. So what, what you look for in an elder is humility, not pride. Not grandstanding, not being in the spotlight or on the stage, but rather uh, faithfully teaching God's word, ministering it to God's people, shining shoes, washing feet, uh, pursuing obscurity, laying your life down um, for the sheep like the great shepherd of the sheep has done. And so, you know, he mentions the plots of the Jews. There are a lot of these tears because the Jews were after me and uh, making my life hard and persecuting me. And, you know, the fact is that you will have enemies. You will make enemies in and outside the church as a pastor, as an elder. And if you don't, you're doing something wrong. You're not doing your job. And he goes on to talk in verse 20 about not shrinking from teaching anything that is profitable. That's part of it is the word of God goes out in power, not because of us, but because it's his word and his word created the worlds. And, you know, you'd hear preachers, you hear preachers sometimes talk about the whole counsel of God, preaching the whole counsel. I've heard it put the whole countenance of God. In other words, every aspect of his face, not just one side of it, not just his best side, not just, but all of it seeing his full visage, seeing his full countenance, preaching the whole counsel, Paul says in verse 27, and then not shrinking from teaching anything that is profitable here in verse 20. Um, You know, a lot of times, though, you just hear pastors preach from the New Testament or from Romans, Presbyterian. I grew up Presbyterian, the Presbyterian, and I'm thankful I did. But every denomination has its shortcomings, and I feel like Genesis, the Psalms, um, the Gospel of John, the Book of Romans, and the first three chapters of Revelation uh, were preached through and then repeat, like the whole time I grew up. Now, I'm sure that's an exaggeration, but uh, what about Leviticus? What about the Minor Prophets? What about um, the Catholic and, and pastoral epistles, etc.? So, anyway, uh, we need to preach and teach the whole counsel of God, His full count, show His full countenance to His people, all taken to us and and consummated and revealed to us most clearly in Jesus Christ. Always, whatever we're teaching, showing how Jesus uh, is the prism through which the light of God's word shines in its most brilliant and perfect colors. Um, Christ is the full revelation to us of God in a way that we can understand and embrace. And so, and he brings us, he doesn't just bring God to us as God, he brings us to God, doesn't he? Um, by being the mediator. And so that's, you know, one reason that we, we, a pastor needs to be, an elder needs to be someone who can walk through not just the gospels and not just the epistles, the letters of Paul, um, but also, which tend to be fairly logical and, and rife with, with good theology, but also we need to be able to pe- uh, teach and, and we need to be teaching and unpacking to God's people and feeding them with the histories, the the Old Testament narratives, the law, the uh, the wisdom literature, the minor and major prophets, and the book of Revelation without shying away from it and scaring people, but actually, as John says at the opening of that book, saying, look, showing them how this is the best of news. Christ is reigning. This was written to a persecuted church wondering if indeed Christ was victorious. And John saying, oh, he's we are suffering here, but not because he's not victorious. He's using our suffering just like he used the cross to conquer and to spread his kingdom. Take heart, church. So, so the, the elder needs to be a man steeped in God's word, able to rightly handle and divide the word of truth and cook it up and deliver it to God's people in a way they can be nourished um, in. And so that's one reason just practically that we're gonna, we've been in Acts and 
we're probably going to move to all 12 minor prophets fairly soon. We won't uh, preach every chapter, but we're going to probably maybe spend 20 weeks or so in the spring in the minor prophets. And from here, right after the book of Acts, we finish it up in early August. We probably move to Proverbs for a bit. And so there needs to be Old Testament. There needs to be New Testament. Um, Always, always taking us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, But so, and, 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 you know, not just preaching Jesus loves you. That's not effective. That's not helpful. That's not the full countenance. Um, the wonder of the fact that Jesus loves us is that we have done everything uh, to make ourselves unlovely. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We deserve punishment. And here's why. Here's, here's God's goodness. And here's how we've fallen short. And the law helps us to see how far short we have fallen. And then with that problem straight in front of us, with the goodness of God in our faces and in our minds and hearts, then as we're convicted of sin and we see how far uh, short we fall, then Christ is presented. He steps in. He takes the punishment that we deserve. He gives us his life of righteousness and his record. He brings us to himself through his shed blood for us. He takes our place on that cross. He pays the penalty for sin, and he buries death and the power of sin, and he rises to a new kind of life, and we are united to him by faith. This is the full gospel that we need to preach and teach. So elders need to, it says in the next verse, in verse 20, that elders are teaching uh, in public and from house to house. Paul was, but I'm appropriating, taking a, a bit of liberty here, but I'm appropriating some of what Paul, basically the text here in Acts 20 is, he talks about himself and his ministry, and then he moves to the elders. And I'm taking, I'm appropriating some of what he says about his own ministry. He was an apostle. We are not apostles um, to elders. I believe he was also a a type of elder, certainly a pastoral, although he was more than a pastor. And so I think that everything that Paul says here about his ministry, we can very well um, apply to, to elders. He was teaching in public and from house to house. So he was building up the church. He was also proclaiming the gospel in public. Elders need to be men who do both, who not only shore up and shepherd the church of God and feed and fortify them with God's word by his spirit and equip them for the work of the ministry, but also are out there uh, proclaiming the gospel to people in the world that don't know him to the lost. And so there's a sense in which there needs to be a bit of an evangelist in every every elder. Um, The evangelist is, I think, a distinct calling, and and it's a gift that not every person in the church has, but even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, let's say as a pastor, as an elder— you still need to be evangelizing. It's the call to every Christian is to go sh- spread the gospel, share the gospel, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us, baptizing them, um, drawing them into the family of God, and building them up in Christ. And so there needs to be some of that. Um, I love the bit about the house to house, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's again a validation of, of what we're doing in our house church model. It's not a new idea. The elder is not a new idea. It's God's idea. Um, the house church model is not just an ancient biblical, an ancient church model. The, the, the house church was, was the way that the church was essentially for the first three centuries of the church. It's also a global model. It's, it's probably the most pervasive and common, I would say, uh, mod, church model still today in the majority world. Um, having church be something that happens on a Sunday with a few people on a stage and the rest of them sitting there staring is 
actually that's that's the model that I think is extremely infected by and colored by our American um, cultural obsession with entertainment and performance. You have the stage, you have the people talking, you have the professionals. Um, no. And again, am I saying that that the church that the church gathering can't be that way? No, of course not. But we need to be aware of the fact that um, people need to be using their gifts. There needs to be prophetic word given. There needs to be a tongue and then an interpretation. There needs to be a going to the scripture and a reading of that. There needs to be a testimony. There needs to be healing for those that need healing. There needs to be a meal. There needs to be um, communion taken at the right time. There needs to be, and under the right shepherding, obviously, there needs to be the, the word gathered around the word, the word taught and opened up, um, questions asked, discussion had, and on and on it goes. Uh, prayer, um, generosity, taking care of each other's needs, um, being filled by the Spirit and charged to go out and to reach those around us that God has put around us in our lives to uh, that are lost with, with the good news of Jesus Christ and how God has rescued us through his son. So, so all of these are what the church is and needs to look like as we gather and as we scatter to go reach the lost. And that, that we see that kind of packed into this text. And we're trying to get there as a, increasingly, just week by week as a church, as a people. So um, Paul mentions that he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. You know, that's, a, that's the mark of an elder. But both to Jews and to Greeks covers every, everybody. It, it, he's saying to Jews and to everyone else non-Jews, to pagans, to those that are not ethnically Jewish. So he, he, the gospel wasn't for him just for one people. It wasn't just for his own people, the Jews. It wasn't just for, it was for everyone. And the elder needs to be someone who gives the gospel uh, of repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to everyone. All skin colors, all ethnicities, all classes, all creeds, black, brown, white, Afghan, American, Mexican, Egyptian, Iranian, Australian, rich, poor, middle class, educated, illiterate, man, woman, child, gay, straight, politically left or right, Muslim, Sikh, atheist, Mormon, and on I could go. And don't think for a second, by the way, in throwing gay and straight in there that I'm, that I'm equating those things to, to gender or to race or to ethnicity. I'm not. That's just a little sidebar. But I am saying that everyone needs the gospel, because everyone is born in sin, estranged from God, self-focused, rebellious, uh, and we need a Savior. We need a Savior, and we need our ministers, our, I shouldn't say ministers, because, because the pastor is the one who is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, so the saints are the ministers, and uh, there's a sense in which, as an elder, you cease to be a minister, and you cease to, your job uh, starts to become to raise up ministers for the gospel, right? Uh, but our elders, our shepherds, um, need to be people who minister the gospel to to anyone and to everyone. Um, every single person is someone who's lost and needs found, who's dead and needs raised, who's blind and needs sight. So Paul talks about. He moves on from here and he says, "Look, I'm." He he says, "I'm going to Jerusalem." And I think that there's decent scholars talk about this, commentators of the book of Acts, that there's decent evidence to think that, you know, he, I mean, the next passage is, is people, multiple people having prophetic words for him saying, look, the Holy Spirit is clearly showing us that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, you're going to be imprisoned, you might die. And he says, 
I believe you, but I'm going. And so there's, there's a fair amount of evidence that Paul, he, you know, every, what did Jesus say? Every prophet goes to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus went to Jerusalem to die outside the walls on a cross. And that was his mission. He would, he constantly was telling his disciples, look, I came, I came to die. My mission is to die as a sin sacrifice, a substitute. And Paul is probably thinking, look, I'm going the way of my savior. There has been one sacrifice for sins that was satisfactory for all who would come to him. And that's Jesus. I'm not that, but, but we must carry our crosses and follow him. And I don't count my life precious. I want to do the work God's given me to. And, and I'm going to Jerusalem. And if it means death, it means death. And I, that would be an honor for me. I mean, you, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of evidence that Paul's thinking that way. And he's certainly not afraid of death. Um, for him, he's not afraid of death because, you know, Christ, he understands that Christ has, he's broken, he's, uh, he's defeated death. He's broken the power of sin and death and hell and, and Satan. And so Paul's free. He's free from fear of death. And we could use a lot more of that in our, uh, you know, he, he's, he doesn't shirk suffering. He doesn't shirk hard work. He's looking toward the prize, the upward call of, um, of Christ Jesus. He's looking toward the meeting Jesus face to face after he dies and having Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did exactly what I charged you to enter into your master's reward, enter into your inheritance. Um, there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. There's a new creation and how we live here and how we minister here will have reverberations forever. And so Paul is filled with this godly ambition and it's pushing out this fear of death because of what Christ has done. And we could do it with a lot more of uh, a lesser fear of death because of the conquest of Christ. And what we've seen in the church is, uh, and in the world certainly is so much fear of death as COVID has manifested this past year. And uh, we need as Christians to be fearless in the face of death. Um, not uncareful, not uncaring, because, you know, the, the message was sent to us that if you get too close to people during COVID, you could infect them, etc. I get that. But uh, we'd have, we have nothing to fear. We need to hate sin, and, and our fear of death uh, should be abolished. And we have a great hope that, that supersedes death, um, and, and that in Christ. And so the world needs that always the world really needs that right now and if we live that way as christians and if we minister and live that way as elders and teach the hope that we have um through what christ has done to our people and they to a watching and weary world that the the world's going to take notice as as the world um believes in god and trusts in god and loses sight of what the gospel even is and who jesus even is and what he came to do more and more as the as the world the western world loses sight of that and runs from that and forsakes its inheritance, they're going to be more and more craven and cowardly and afraid and angry and fearful. And Christians will shine ever brighter against that sort of black backdrop. And so, and so um, we need that. And you know, uh, leaders in the underground Chinese church were asked by Westerners at some point where they went to seminary to be leaders in the church. And they responded, we essentially, we, we've been to the seminary of suffering. Uh, we've, our seminary is prison. Um, the school, there are many ways in which the school of Christ is the school of suffering. So, so elder, just expect it, know that, um, it's a high calling and, and you're not, if suffering comes upon you, if the, if the crosshairs of Satan are more upon you, um, it's a good thing. We don't love suffering and pain. It's, those are evils, but, uh, 
they are in a lot of ways are the mark of, of a man of God, a woman of God. And so um, Christ will use those to make us more like him and to, uh, to knock off the, the fleshly burrs <clears throat> that are around us. And so, um, you know, I talked about this in the sermon a lot, so I'm not going to talk about it as much here, but in verse 24, Paul says, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, you know, this, this ministry is not from me to these men that we're ordaining. It's not even from the other sojourn elders who concur in all this. And that's part of why we have confidence in what we're doing, because we're not doing it alone. But through, through all of these elders and through the congregation and through the other organizations that we're a part of that are very much for us having a plurality of pastoring um, for our people, uh, we're reminded this is God's idea and it's God is the one. And even in the timing that I took pains to describe and took time to describe at the beginning of this message, it's a reminder to us that God is in this, that he's the one that appoints us, that gives us the ministry. Um, Paul received his ministry from the Lord Jesus and we do too. We do too. And that's an encouraging thing. And and you see embedded in this text, and and, and um, for the sake of time, just I'll kind of com- compress it here, but in verses that follow here, that really Paul says, don't ever stop teaching and preaching essentially the two-pronged gospel message, which he emphasizes the fact that um, the, message, the message of the gospel is a message of the grace. It's the message of, of grace, the message of the grace of God manifest in Jesus Christ. And gr- what is grace? It's a kind of a churchy word, but it's a wonderful word. Um, and, it, and, and what is grace is the, it's the opposite of human work to measure up to God, to clean ourselves off and to make us acceptable in God's sight. Um, grace is the work of another applied to us through no good of our own, through faith. It's the work of Jesus Christ and his merit and his perfection and his righteousness and his goodness and his obedience to the Father out of a heart that truly loves God and wants to please God and is fully and knows that he is fully loved by the Father and has nothing to prove and is resting in the love of the Father. Um, it, is, it is that merit, that record, that goodness and that heart that is given to us, conferred upon us through faith, not through our own work, but through faith, which is the anti-work. It's a, faith is a way of saying, I can't do it. You have to do it. You have done it in Christ. And grace is also the, it also encompasses the, uh, not just the positive, the giving of all, to us of all the goodness of Christ and making us like Jesus, um, but also of the taking away of our sins, of expiation, of the expunging of, and the atonement of, the covering of, and the wiping away of all of our rebellion and evil and hatred and self, um, self-absorption and pride and so on and so forth that Christ paid for on the cross. It's the, uh, it's, the making, it's the making us right before God. Uh, grace is, is the work of Jesus applied to us through faith and not through our own work. And so this has to be at the center of everything that the elder does, speaks, embodies, lives. And then, and then in verse 25, Paul says, you know, he talks about the kingdom come and coming. He says, uh, and now behold, I know that none of you None of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So it is what I said. It's, it's the, we need to be proclaimers. Our elders need to be proclaimers of the, and extenders of, in word and deed, of the grace of God. It's not by work like every other religion. It's not a ladder that we try to climb up to get to God through our own behavior uh, and penance. It's, it's a ladder 
that Christ, uh, th- by which Christ came down to us to do what we could not do for ourselves. Salvation is of God completely um, through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, when we believe on him, he gives us his very spirit to come live in us and makes us his children and makes us right before him. Um, this is grace, but also it's, it's the message of the kingdom that Christ, that wherever Paul went, he proclaimed the kingdom. The fact that what Jesus did when he rose from the dead, he buried an old order on the cross, the sinful, broken order opposed to God, and that affected all creation. And he rose a new type of man, a second man. That's what Adam, the word Adam just means man or human. He rose as a second Adam, a second type of man, untainted by sin, unable to sin, having buried death and sin and broken its power and having dominion now over all creation that will be unaffected by sin and all of that new creation, including a new humanity, will come from this new man that is, that is risen from the grave. And so he brought up with him a new creation and he's the, he's the promise of all that will come. He's the first fruit, Paul says, of a new bumper crop that's going to be unaffected by the fall. And so um, he frees us from our sins and he makes us children of God. He also is, he also is the captain, the first man of a new creation that is spreading out where the rule of God is going to be over and manifest in this new creation and um, cancer and sin and selfishness and locks on doors and guns and wars, they won't be, uh, they won't exist in this new creation. And this new creation with the resurrection of Christ has broken into the old creation. And that's part of our gospel message. And that's part of what happens when someone is born again by faith in Christ is that they become a new creature. And, what they touch and where they live and the areas they inhabit begin to change. We as a church are culture changers because through us, the kingdom of God spreads. And indeed it will spread out over all the earth. Um, Partially in this broken creation, it will spread out over all the earth and every tribe and tongue will hear the gospel and some from every tribe and tongue will believe on Christ and be saved and will be become culture changers. And through them, the kingdom of God will grow and then Christ will return. And so that's, we see that, we've seen that happening in the past 2,000 years. In the past two centuries, we've seen it really accelerate, even as evil and darkness have grown. Uh, the kingdom is, has spread, has spread in, a, in, a, in a way that it never has before. And indeed, that's happening still today. As in the West, the kingdom is sort of receding and um, unbelief is spreading, but in everywhere else in the, gospel, in the, uh, in the world, in the global South and in the East, um, and in Africa, the kingdom is growing like wildfire. And so this is, these two, this two-pronged message of grace and of, and of kingdom need to be a huge part of, you know, Christ as Savior and King, Savior and Lord, are a huge part of our message and need to be an integral part of the message of, of the elder. Um, and really what Paul, what I kind of have a lot of in the notes and what Paul really focuses on too is just the job of the elder who again I'll just glance over it here but the elder in verse 28 Paul uses the words um, that we get from the Greek elder presbyter same word uh, bishop 
and shepherd or pastor. He uses those interchangeably. So those are not three different offices. They're the same thing. Um, the elder is a shepherd or pastor. And so we ordain these men to elder to eldership. We're ordaining them to the pastorate as pastors. And the elder, Paul just says so clearly in verse 28 and elsewhere, that the elder needs to be a shepherd. He needs to care for the flock, to pay attention to all the flock, says, Paul says, not just most or some, but to everyone, especially to the weak and to those who stray. Um, it, is, it is the Holy Spirit who's made you overseers, Paul says. So when you serve the church, you're serving Christ, but also, um, again, it's not, it's not people in the church that have given you this ministry. It's God himself. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, we are not self-appointed. If you don't ever follow a self-appointed pastor. Um, there's accountability. There is, uh, it's the Lord through this accountability that is making these men overseers, um, shepherds, elders, presbyters. So, um, Paul, I think I'll maybe say this and then kind of wind down, but Paul, um, he says, pay careful attention to the flock because they're going to be, they're going to come in wolves and the shepherd needs to be able to lay his life down and, and step in between the sheep, the sheep and the wolf and, and get bitten up in place of the sheep to protect the sheep. And that, that, that is part of any, uh, good ministry of an elder. Um, but also he says, before he says, pay, pay attention to, and watch out for the sheep. He says, he says, pay careful, verse 28, pay careful, careful attention to yourself. And the fact is that, um, you know, the elder needs to chiefly be focused on, first of all, the elder needs to understand that the crosshairs are on him in a new way and to be extra vigilant and sober and watchful. And that kind of takes us to some of Paul's language of the elder qualifications in first Timothy three and Titus one. Um, the elder needs to be above reproach and the elder needs to never think that, you know, first Corinthians is at 10, never think that he is above falling and, uh, and to put as many accountability rings around him as possible and to stay in the word and to stay constant in prayer. And really, you know, the lower you go, the lower you are as a person and as an elder, as a pastor, the, the less far you have to fall, the less it hurts when you do fall. And so this is one reason that humility and contrition need to mark the elder. And the ministry certainly helps with that. Um, keeps you humble. And, you know, when you do fall, it doesn't hurt as much because you're falling from a foot instead of from 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 feet. And so, um, but that part of that list of, that Paul gives, it says, you know, that one of the marks is the elder needs to be above reproach. And, uh, or the other, another way to translate it is, is, is blameless, irreproachable doesn't mean perfect of course you know if you think if you say you have no sin you're a dece- you're a, a liar and the truth is not in you uh we're sinners till the day we die we're not characterized by sin anymore we're we're characterized by the holiness of Christ and we we're people we're, we are people who do sin but have a have an advocate uh Jesus Christ the righteous who has taken care of our sin and paid for it on the cross and who um advocates for us before the father with his life and his death and his resurrection um but we even in realizing that, even in being a man of contrition and constant repentance, you are a man who is above reproach. You don't have any area of your life that hasn't been brought under the lordship of Christ, that isn't subjected. You're not living in one area going, this is mine, you can have the rest, Lord. No, that's not an elder. An elder is above reproach. Um, Daniel comes to mind. Daniel the prophet who lived in Babylon and his enemies couldn't find any dirt on him. And so the only thing they could find on him was that he prayed too much to God. 
Three times a day, he was regular in prayer. And so wouldn't that be, I mean, that is a man who is above reproach. That is a man who wasn't sinless, but who was serious about the things of God and who didn't play around and who loved God and who was wholly devoted to God. That's what an elder needs to be. Uh, So be sober, be watchful. Um, God has given you this ministry to care for his church. It's not your church. It's his church, and he's bought it with his own blood, Paul goes on to say. So, he goes on to talk about the reward, you know, and this work, I've made it sound so tear-inducing, and yes, it is. The work of the pastor is, in many ways, thankless and hard, uh, and, and it's work, but it's a good work. And there are tears of joy, and there's rejoicing and celebration, and there's a sweetness to it. And we will be rewarded if we if we take to this work and do what God's called us to do. There will be a reward for us from the Master Himself, from our Savior and our Lord. Um, and Paul says that he who aspires, I think this is the first verse in First Timothy 3, he who aspires to be an overseer or elder, same means the same thing, uh, desires a good work. So it's a work. The office of elder and pastor is work. Uh, In verse 35, Paul says, in all things working hard, but it's a good work. That that word good is translated, I think, noble in the ESV. Um, It means good, noble, or beautiful in the Greek. It means all three of those things. So the work that you're called to is a work of beauty and goodness and nobility. It's worthwhile makes me think of, and, and we will receive a reward from the master. So don't even look for the reward here. You'll get bits and, and bobs, but look for the reward that's coming. Look for, keep your eyes fixed on him, on Jesus Christ, and make him your heart's desire. Not, not even the work of the ministry, not even other people, but Christ himself. That needs to mark you as a pastor. That time with him, that devotion to him, that love of him, that love of his word, that love of his spirit, um, that being tucked up in the Father's arms as his child, and that's where your confidence comes from, not from your performance, not from the quality of your work, not from what other people certainly think about you. The sheep will bite. The more you give the sheep what they need and not what they want, the more they'll bite you. You know, It's when I give my kids vegetables that they hate me. When, they, when I give them ice cream, they love me. Um, but if I gave them ice cream all the time, they would be sickly. You know, but receiving that reward, man, it makes me think of the, um, of that, of course, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, and I think of that last scene in the, in the best Star Wars, the first one, um, The New Hope, is it, where Luke and wearing that sweet jacket, and uh, Han Solo with that, with that blaster on his side, and his black vest, and his white shirt, um, walk down that long aisle, after all the fighting they've done and <clears throat> the service to the Republic that they've, that they've done. And they have people on, in, in the pews, on, in the seats on both sides, uh, flanking them. And they walk down that long aisle and they walk up the steps and Leah, Princess Leia's there. And she, they bow their heads and she puts met, medals over their necks. And um, it's, it's a, it, and the, the music by John Williams is so rousing. And it's, uh, it's quite a scene of, 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 of receiving a reward, of being honored, I should say. I think that's even the most touching part about it. They're being honored. Their service is being recognized. And that's just a tiny, it touches me, it touches us, if it does touch you, because, because it taps into what's real. It taps into the fact that we, there is this 
eternal weight of glory that's coming that we just get traces of and tastes of now, but it's coming. There will be a reward from the king. Um, and, um, you know, that, that scene at the end of, or toward the end of the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, where Aragorn, even the king, gets up out of his, off his throne and bows with all of the people, all of the, the humans, I should say, of Middle-earth that are, or some of them in Gondor that are at the top of that city, Minas Tirith, and they all sort of like a wave, get on a knee and bow, uh, not in adoration to, but in gratitude to, and in recognition of these little hobbits. And of course, the hobbits are so humbled, and they their faces flush, Sam's face flushes <clears throat> with embarrassment. Um, but they have the hobbits have done a great, a noble, a good work, and they are being honored for it in the presence of even the king. And no, I don't think Jesus is going to bow to us. We will bow to him. <clears throat> we will bow to him, and rightly so. But there is a sense in which he will honor the work of those who serve his church, his flock. And so every sacrifice is worthwhile because you're making it for him. And you're helping prepare for him a people that he's purchased with his own blood. So that is all I'm going to say for now. It's been a long one, but it's um, it's something that hopefully we can come back to if we need to, and our elders can come back to and Uh, meditate on and pray through. God bless you.